Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Everybody likes a deal. From Black Friday to Cyber Monday to Labor Day weekend, people love to line up and log on for big savings. The deals aren't always worth the effort, though. The percentage might be too low or the brand might not be top tier. But sometimes an opportunity comes along that's just too good to pass up. Along the southern edge of Nebraska is a city, though you wouldn't know it by looking at it. Harvard, Kansas spans less than one square mile and boasts a whopping population of about a thousand people. It was founded when the Burlington and Missouri Railroad laid down tracks there in 1871. Two years later, Harvard was incorporated as a village. It took its name from the prestigious university in Massachusetts, and just like its namesake, it's not without its own list of famous former residents. Ida Bengston was born there in 1881 and went on to become a groundbreaking bacteriologist. She was also the first woman to work at the U.S. Public Health Service's Hygienic Laboratory at the National Institutes of Health. And who could forget Paul Revere? No, not that Paul Revere. Paul Revere Dick was the leader of the hit 1960s rock band Paul Revere and the Raiders. He was born in Harvard in 1938. But the city wasn't just home to scientists and rock stars. Families of all kinds raised their children there. Business owners opened shops. And of course, a place even as small as Harvard needed a police department. Although, given the size of the town, a large prison was deemed unnecessary. Yet there needed to be a place to hold people in case they broke the law, as rare as that was. And so a small brick jailhouse was built. It had a single door on the front and a few small windows on the side to let the light in, but otherwise it was barely bigger than an average-sized dorm room. In 1943, the town decided to put some of its land up for sale to raise money. A 16-year-old boy named Robert Pinckney, who happened to be the son of a local physician, was interested in buying a plot for himself. He planned on using it to grow a victory garden to support the war effort. As he was reading through the list, he noticed something strange, though. Someone had included the town jail as one of the properties for sale. Pinckney, ever the good Samaritan, tried to warn the city about its mistake. Instead of listening, though, the city council laughed him out of the room. Pinckney figured that if they weren't going to remove it from the listing, then he would buy it for himself. And he did. For $1.50. Officials refused to admit their screw-up, and Pinckney signed the papers. He officially became the owner of the Harvard City Jailhouse, and all it had cost him was a buck and a half. The police still went on with business as usual, though, tossing criminals and drunks into the jail when they had to. But Pinckney wasn't thrilled with his property being used without his permission now. He was the landlord, after all, so with the help of a lawyer, he sued the town for back rent. Harvard agreed, but on the condition that Robert tended the jail as though it was his own home. He was required to pull the weeds, trim the trees on the property, and get rid of the sidewalks or face heavy fines. Pinckney thought it might be easier to just tear the whole thing down altogether. Harvard couldn't have that happen, though, so they made a deal to buy the jail back from him. There was just one problem. He wasn't old enough to sell it. He'd have to wait until he turned 21. 
So the city did its best to hide its squabble with the budding real estate mogul, but word of Pickney's pettiness got out to the press. It even made national news. Suddenly, people came crawling out of the woodwork to buy the jail from him. One person offered him $150 for it, while someone else asked to rent it for $35 a month. But Pickney had a better idea. He put the jailhouse up for auction to raise money for war bonds. One person came forward and bid $10,000. Well, person isn't quite the right word for him. You see, Charlie McCarthy, who won the jail in the auction, was a dummy. And that's not an insult, either. He was a literal dummy, belonging to the world-famous ventriloquist Edgar Bergen. Charlie gave the jail back to Harvard soon after. It's still there, too, with a plaque outside that explains its tumultuous history. And no dummy, real or wooden, ever put it up for sale again. Everyone has something to hide. It might be an illicit relationship, or reckless spending habits, or even something as harmless as a cupcake when they think no one is looking. Regardless of what it is, it seems like no one is without a skeleton or two in their closets. Just be careful if you start digging. You might not like what you find. Jenny Minton certainly did not. It was August of 2011, and the 16-year-old Oregon native had been clearing out a closet in a local lodge. You see, her mother was a member of a social group known as the Daughters of Rebecca, who used the space for their gatherings. Minton stumbled upon a strange sight during her cleaning. It was a coffin. Now, her first thought was that it had been a prop, maybe from an old theatrical performance held at the lodge. But once she and her mother, Linda, opened the lid, they realized that there was nothing fake about it. Inside the five-foot-long casket were bones. Lots of them, too. And they had yellowed and molded. Among the desecrated remains were teeth, a jaw, and even a skull. Jenny and her mom thought they had found something sinister, so they called the police. I have a skeleton in the closet, Linda told the dispatcher. We all do, the person on the other end of the line said. Little did they know that Linda and her daughter actually had found a skeleton in the closet of the lodge. A detective arrived to collect the bones for analysis. The police then conducted an investigation of the scene, but no foul play was detected. A similar experience happened to Paul Wallace in Warrington, Virginia in 2001. He'd been fixing the electrical wiring in a brick building when he noticed a small door in one of the walls. Wallace opened it up and pulled out a black box similar to the one Jenny Minton would find 10 years later. Inside it was a skeleton and several white candles. Not wanting to disturb a possible crime scene any further, Wallace pushed the box and its contents back behind the door and alerted the authorities. They executed a search warrant immediately and took custody of the skeleton. Though Warrington had never experienced such a grisly discovery before, similar incidents had unfolded in attics and crawl spaces all over the country, and they would continue to do so for years to come. Jim Lushka from Missouri thought that he had snagged a great deal on a couple of prop caskets for his local theater group. Little did he know that one of them contained real bones that had once belonged to a living human being. But these coffins weren't a serial killer's trophy, nor were they the work of a murderous cult. The buildings that the bones had been found in belonged to the fraternal organization known as the Independent Order of Oddfellows. It was formed in 1819 by English philanthropist Thomas Wadley, 
He had started the order as an offshoot of the original Oddfellows fraternity, which had gotten its start in England back in the 17th century. Soon after its incorporation, Wildly began traveling all over the U.S. to open up lodges and establish new chapters. Throughout its history, the Oddfellows have been linked to secret societies like Freemasons and the Illuminati. In reality, they were nothing like them at all. Their mission statement claimed that the Oddfellows visited the sick, relieved the distressed, buried the dead, and educated the orphaned. In other words, they helped people wherever they could. However, like those other organizations, initiation had its own set of rituals and customs. One such ritual involved a new member interacting with the skeleton, literally coming face-to-face with death as a reminder to make the most of the life they were given. To do that, they had to dedicate that life to helping others. In recent years, the skeletons have been replaced with plaster facsimiles. However, there was a time when an odd fellow could purchase a real one from a company specializing in their procurement. It's typically those remains that wind up kicking off police searches and investigations. As lodges close, the people cleaning them out don't realize the meaning behind the boxes of bones that they find. Today, the Independent Order of Oddfellows boasts 600,000 members and 10,000 lodges across 26 countries. There is also a female-focused branch known as the Daughters of Rebecca, the organization Jenny and Linda Minton belonged to back in 2011. Given the number of lodges remaining, it's only a matter of time before someone unwittingly stumbles upon another skeleton. Everyone meets death eventually, but most people don't expect to meet it inside their closet. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.